So, we all know about Brexit. The question is, what does it really mean, does anyone know? Now, you might think that 24th of June is now quite a long time ago. But there are lots of issues that we need to think about. So, I'm going over things that you know already, but I think it's just useful to rehearse them. So, what are the potential or actual losses? Access to EU research funding, that's very, very serious because we get a lot of it and there's nothing obvious to replace it. We don't know what's going to happen to the Erasmus student and staff exchanges, but even if somebody offers some money, it seems to me it's going to be really difficult to replace what's there. Loss of access to major EU infrastructure, that's particularly problematic for people in big science where they have shared equipment. Loss of UK presence in, in lots of key EU databases like Eurostats and she figures. We won't be in those anymore and that's a problem. It's not that of course you will still have access to them because they're public documents, but as the UK won't appear in them, we won't know how we compare. There will be kind of new EU students possibly beyond 2017-18, but of course we don't know how much we'll have to charge them, nor do we know if they'll want to come. My guess is many of them may not. That there's also the potential loss of EU staff, of which there are a great many in many of our universities. However long they've been here at the moment, unless they have British citizenship, they don't have any security of tenure. And possibly it breaks up the whole of the UK, because clearly Scotland, which voted heavily to remain, does not want to stay. But there's also a big issue about the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which has to be resolved too. And what are we going to gain? All right, there was some money in the budget for research and development. It sounds like quite a lot. It's somewhere between two and four million. We don't know what the strings are that are attached because obviously a budget is just a headline statement. It's only when you see how that's interpreted that you know what it means. But that doesn't seem to be very much in relation to what we're potentially going to lose. Big question about whether we will still have a united UK at the end of this process. But Brexit also affects the rest of European higher education. And there are a number of different ways in which that's possible. I mean, one is that many countries are now scared that their country might go down the same route. You've got the whole thing about right-wing leaders. So, yes, the Austrian presidential election had a good outcome. We don't know what's going to happen in France. There's clearly a tricky situation in Italy. We don't know what's going to happen in Germany, whether Merkel will get back or not. When Merkel becomes the acceptable moderate candidate, it's quite an interesting process, I think, and says something about the state of politics in the world. That EU countries, of course, will hoover up many, not just extra EU students, but also international students, because many international students have been put off coming to the UK by the constant battle about visas, plus the extra message that Brexit is saying, we really don't like other countries. EU academics will lose, will get much more research funding because they won't have the competitive edge of the, of the UK partners. But there's going to be a lot of loss of skilled collaborators. UK academics have been very popular collaborators for many European countries. And all right, at the moment, in, technically, you're still supposed to be able to go in. But we know anecdotally that lots of people have been told to get off bids because the other countries are worried that having the UK on it will, will prejudice their chances. So that's not very helpful. Maybe there will be more EU-based UK branch campuses. I don't know how that would work. I don't know what the status of those would be. I know some institutions have one already and others are thinking about it. But also I think there's an interesting question about the benchmark of quality of, of particularly research excellence in Europe. 
because the European Research Council in particular is used by many countries as, as a kind of measure of who are the top people. Now, I think removing the UK from that is going to have an effect on the overall standard. And that may cause people to look for other benchmarks because those don't work. It's also because I, there's a huge amount of evaluation is done in Europe uh, by UK academics. And if they're not part of that system in the future, then somebody else is going to have to do that. So it's not just us that's affected by this, it's everybody. So where have we got to now? Okay, so we're post-truth, we're post-experts, although Jonathan Grant said that's a bit of a complicated debate. I won't go over that again. Post-Trump, post-higher court judgment, we don't know what the final appeal result will be. The Richmond by-election, so, you know, that seemed to offer a wave of hope, but then Richmond voted to remain anyway, so I'm not sure that that tells us a great deal. There is, of course, the notion of different kinds of Brexit. Its, it's similarity to breakfast is a bit of a problem, I sometimes think. But anyway, so you can have a full English or, or, you know, a continental Brexit. You can have a hard Brexit. We don't know what that means. We just know it's going to be difficult. I think that's one of the problems. We're definitely not going to have a soft Brexit because that would go against the ideology of the government. And we might have, this has just come to light, it might cost a lot more than we thought, Brexit which seems to then defeat the object, because if you're paying the same amount of money as you were when you were in the EU, why not just stay in it? But it also causes massive uncertainty, and I think that's the real problem for universities. The UK issues a bulletin about every week in which they have where the discussions on, on Europe are, are progressing. And I used to read them eagerly, and now I feel so depressed I don't even open them. I just leave them, and I think I'll look at them some other time. And I don't know whether it has that effect for other people. But there's also this kind of hate climate that, you know, anybody who's not white, anybody who doesn't speak perfect English, that probably includes an awful lot of people who are English, I'm sure, or speaks English with a foreign accent. Well, does that count? Do the Scots count for that as well? Um, it's really, really problematic. And it's, it's really affecting lots of our students. Lots of our students feel completely unwelcome. They might still be here, but they don't feel at home. Lots of EU academics feel very unsettled. They don't know what to do. And this foreigner's unwelcome notice is being held up by the UK to the rest of the world every time someone makes a speech from, from the current government. And I think that's very unfortunate, because that surely is completely unhelpful. OK, so what has been done? Right, so there's, there's some short-term reassurance about funding of EU students. So if a PhD student from the EU has a research council grant for a three-year PhD study in 1718, the government has guaranteed they'll be able to do it. I jolly well hope they have, because they've been given a promise that that will happen, So, or they will have been when they get it. So that doesn't seem to me to really solve any problems. All right, current and immediate future EU study plans and fees can go ahead whilst we're still in the EU. Of course, what happens afterwards, we haven't a clue. Similarly, the government has said, oh, you know, current EU projects that are funded or go beyond us leaving the EU won't be affected. But then what about all the things that we would have done had we not been thrown off those projects? And what about the things that we might have developed had we been remaining in? There's no certainty about anything else. There's no certainty about access to future EU funding for research. There's no certainty about Erasmus. There's no certainty that there will be any kind of free movement of academic labour. Not least because some of the salaries are possibly going to be below any kind of salary level. And EU residents clearly have no guarantee that they're going to be able to stay. Now, this is the man who's been designing all sorts of things that are not necessarily Brexit-related, although his brother has a few things to answer for. I think they're on slightly different sides of the Brexit fence. Um, but here are his green paper and his white paper, and people are saying, oh, everything's fine now because Joe Johnson's in charge and we'll be okay. But 
what I also want to say is that I think we need to not look just at Brexit, but as good higher education researchers, we also need to look at what else is going on, which is the reason I showed you the picture of Joe Johnson, because there are other trends to suggest that the government is very keen to restrict public universities in the UK. So, the teaching excellence framework. So, which is going to suggest that much of the UK is not very good at teaching, since bronze will be the biggest category of, of people who take part in, in TEF2. Possibly, this is a rumour, we don't know if it's true, but it might be the case that if you get bronze, you won't be able to in recruit international students at all. Now, some VCs say, oh, this is a load of rubbish, that's not going to happen. But Amber Rudd said again this week that there is no possibility of taking international students out of the overall net migration figures. That doesn't sound like they're making concessions. Hefke is modelling 100,000 international students. That isn't EU students, that's international students. They are saying it excludes EU students. But when we leave the EU, EU students will have the same status as international students. So then the numbers are going to look even smaller. The voice of HE has basically been, it seems to me the value of HE is actually being reduced in the TEF to, to employment in a highly paid job so they can repay the loan. If that is what we want, if that's what we think is teaching excellence, don't quite see who it is. There are 50 years of sociology of education research which show that actually what you get paid in the labour market has to do with gender, it has to do with class, it has to do with ethnicity, and probably if you've done a numerate degree it also is related to that. So that most of that is not about teaching. So maybe the numeracy bit is, but the rest isn't. Then we have the higher education bill. Okay, so the office for students when set up, Sounds terribly innocuous, doesn't it? Office for students. Who could, who could possibly think that that wasn't a good thing? But look at the powers it's getting. It can remove university titles, degree awarding powers, even royal charters. And nobody much until very late on made a fuss about that. The Office for Students, unlike other official regulators in the UK, isn't just a regulator. It also has the power to shape the market because it can take people out or let them in. That is unparalleled. The quality and standards will both be the province of the Office for Students. Again, we have not had that before. And the emphasis, it seems to me, of both the TEF and these other policies and the Higher Education Bill is on easing access to higher education for profit, for, for profit providers of HE. That's what the government wants. That's why they call them challengers, and the rest of us are incumbents. So, TEF measures. This is stolen from the Times Higher, but I think we need to adapt it a little bit. It's not just enough to write your lines at five o'clock for two hours. I will be a quality teacher. You also have to add hyphen, despite Brexit. When you've done that, you can go home. Then you can do your marking. Feedback's very important, you know, in the NSS. Okay, so other government policies and education reinforcing Brexit destabilisation. Right, also in the Higher Education Bill, UK research and innovation has a worrying concentration of power over research funding, which we've never had before. Changes to the Research Funding Council structure and telling HEIs with whom they should collaborate, because there's been a lot of that, you, you know, you're too European, you need to collaborate with India or China or US, not Europe. Well, excuse me, is somebody going to move Europe further away? We're quite close to them, actually. And maybe in some disciplines, we're so close to them that we can't really do the research anywhere else. But all of those things are, are actually threatening the Haldane principle, which says politics and science should be separate. It seems to me that it's actually breaching that, even though we constantly get told that's not the case. 
If net migration does drop, that's going to affect us. Most of that is going to be done by restricting more student visas and by telling institutions who, who they may and may not actually recruit. But also, in this mix, I would add, and I'm sure some of you know about this, but maybe not everybody does, even in the UK system, we have something called the Competition and Markets Authority, which has spotted a little opportunity to be nasty to universities because they're not going to fight back too hard. Now, I'm all for making sure that we don't give students restrictive terms of how they come into institutions, how easy it is to change, whether what they're, we're, they're being taught is, is exactly as they was described when they applied. But it seems to me that this whole argument that they're making about pre-contractual customers um, applying through UCAS for a degree, you know, if you're going to change anything, you have to get their consent, you have to tell them, you have to tell people well in advance. This seems to me this goes much, much further. And I think this is also a kind of covert attempt to kind of emphasise the for-profit good public bad policy on HE. So that seems to me also part of this wider policy brief. Okay, so Theresa May was seen as the least worst option as Prime Minister, but she loves visas, we know that because of her previous role at the Home Office, and she voted Remain, but perhaps she really wanted to vote Leave, because many of them seem confused over what they voted and whether that was a good thing or not. Well, of course, that applies to quite a few other voters too, but not necessarily going to deliver anything that uh, is, is of use to us, and also is spending most of her time trying to balance the left and the right wing of the Tory party, not to mention her foreign secretary and his various gaffes. Okay, so government attitude to HE. Let, let's try and summarise this. Okay, having international students in your university is seen as an unsustainable model. Why? They're not cod. They, haven't, they aren't in danger of disappearing because <laughs> we, we fish too many of them. There's billions of them out there. What's the problem? And then, you know, some, the person from the UK International Unit, Vivian Stern, who, you know, is a very sensible person, says, what we must do is tell nice stories to the country about why we need international students. Well, sure, we can tell nice stories. That's what the Daily Mail does, that most readers of the Daily Mail cannot understand a political issue unless you tell them about what happened to Joe Bloggs down the road, and then they can relate to it. But, of course, if Joe Bloggs is, in fact, somebody with a foreign name, that will cause problems, too. So that's possibly a little problem. Okay, so we've, I've already mentioned that, you know, we're, we're being told who we should collaborate with in the future. Well, I think I would make the point that many UK universities already collaborate with many countries outside Europe. And indeed, if there was this extra research money which people are talking about, I'm sure we'd be trying to get it now. But actually, there's a big decline going on in research funding. Goodness knows what's going to happen to research funding in the US under Trump because he has no brief for higher education whatsoever, apart from his now failed and, and fined heavily uh, Trump University. Also, I think that the government doesn't understand that collaboration means different things for different disciplines. If you're a, sci a laboratory-based scientist, the science is probably much the same, whatever country in the world it's done. If you're a social scientist or an arts humanities scholar, that's not the case. Yes, some of the concepts might be the same, but the cultural contexts in which you're researching are very, very different. You can't suddenly move from, you know, researching Spain or France to researching India or China. It doesn't work like that, and they don't understand that, because as so far as they're concerned, science means labs, and they're not really interested in the rest of us. And anyway, we were all Remain voters, and they hate us. Okay. 
this is another criticism. Universities are living in a pre-Brexit bubble. It's all universities' fault that all those people voted to leave. If only you'd been sort of widening your participation, things would have been different. There was an article by John Morgan in, in the Times Higher a few weeks ago in which he said, universities don't have a sufficient spread of political views. The staff are too left-wing. But my argument would be, Universities are meant to provide a space where people can debate different views. I think that's really important. Jonathan Grant, I think, reinforced that yesterday in his plenary too. But many of the things that, also the government some of these has put some of these things in place, that the lack of tolerance for particular points of view, the prevent strategy, which is meant to identify potential terrorists, has been used to attack and terrify people who are simply doing their research on something of a country which may be seen as problematic. So reading a textbook about, um, you know, for example, Iran or Iraq could now be enough to make people think you're becoming radicalised. Whereas, in fact, it was simply that your dissertation shooter would be terribly happy that you've actually picked up a book several weeks before you have to submit your dissertation. But, of course, the people who are doing prevent don't understand that. There are, there's the whole debate that student unions are having about no platforming. Of course, if you're talking about somebody who has Nazi sympathies, you don't want them to speak on campus. But when it comes to Jermaine Greer and her slightly strange views on transgender people, I really don't think that any great harm is going to come to the average student if they have to sit and listen. And after all, nobody forces you to go to these things. If you're not interested, you just don't go. And we also have trigger warnings. So this is something else that some students are pushing. Oh, sometimes students have to read difficult texts which may make them uncomfortable. We mustn't have that. But isn't higher education about making people sometimes feel uncomfortable about things, thinking about things from a different point of view? So the more we go down this road of not exposing students to it, never mind whether all the staff are left or right wing, but that's not the issue. The issue is, what are we allowing to ha take place on campus? And who else is interfering in that? The argument that we like Europe too much, we must forget about Europe. I've already made the point. We're quite close geographically. I mean, unless there really is going to be some kind of attempt to move us to another part of the world, um, which I think might, even Boris Johnson might find that difficult, then actually it's rubbish. We're self-interested. Oh, and nobody else is. Only universities are self-interested. That's strange, because I think one of the arguments coming from all kinds of companies of all sizes is that they have self-interest, and people listen to them, but somehow with universities, we're not interested. The rest of the population apparently hates experts and elites and makes the point about, you know, economists cause the Eurozone crisis, therefore we don't listen to anybody. We hate immigrants, but... There are some good things. Universities were one of the few institutions during the referendum vote where every generation voted to remain. In general, older generations are more likely to vote to leave and younger generations are more likely to, to vote to remain. In universities, that pattern was completely different. So we did something right, even if we're constantly being told we did everything wrong. Also, higher education has been one of the big EU successes. It's probably been the most successful thing in the EU. So actually, far from it being an example of something that went wrong, and despite the fact that Bologna hasn't, because Bologna is much wider than the EU, but Bologna hasn't been perfectly implemented, but many of the things that have been done about higher education have been extremely successful right across the Europe and through the wider European higher education area too. So, UKHE could be a fork in the road or a cul-de-sac, and we don't know which. But if the cul-de-sac is, is the model, then I think there'll be a bit of an avalanche at the end of it too.
So, this is, this is a couple of friends of mine who were in Brussels last week for a meeting, and just before they caught the plane, they went to the European Parliament, and they said they felt very upset, which is why they took this photo of them looking upset. And I thought this was kind of a, a metaphor, really, for how many of us have felt since the 24th of June. I'll never forget waking up at 5 o'clock on that morning and realising just how awful it was and, and trying to write emails to every sort of institution that we were involved with collaborating with in Europe, saying, yes, it's awful, but don't worry, we still care. We still want to be part of what you're doing. So, what can universities do? Well, they can try and instill good citizenship in students. Yes, employability is important, but so is citizenship. They can keep debating about democracy, about social values. Carol mentioned social justice. We need to keep on talking about those things, even if people are trying to persuade us that we're now post-democracy as well. We can inform students about the history of populist movements. On the day of the American election, I was in Berlin, and I visited the German History Museum, and I read the stories about the rise of Nazism. And it's frightening how much contemporary resonance there is in reading those stories. And I was thinking, I wish every American voter could be forced to go through that exhibition for an hour and then to go away and think again about who they were going to vote. It might not have made any difference, but at least it might engage them with some of those debates because some people don't even know those histories. That we need to keep collaborating with Europe. This, by the way, is Anne Corbyn, not, not um, the other Corbyn, so I just kind of remind you is that actually we need, if we're going to be out of the EU, we still need a European strategy. And that's a reminder to universities, because I don't think that's how many universities are thinking. Some are, but a lot are not. So even if we're not going to be in the EU, we have to have a strategy for Europe. Corbyn also suggests that European university groupings are key, like the things like European Universities Association. Some people are thinking, oh, we'll come out of that now. Now we're not going to be in Europe. Well, you know, we are still going to be in Europe, just that we will have a more complicated relationship. We should also support things like the European Students' Union, which is a very important cross-European voice of what students think, which is vital for all of us to know about. I think universities could do some works already being done with refugees and disadvantaged young people. I would like to see every university engaging fully in that and really trying to do something about that. It seems to me that's a very important space that we can make an intervention in. That I think regional strategies need to be rethought because I think that some research-intensive universities think that because they're global and they do well in the league tables, you don't need to think about a regional strategy. But I think the referendum vote suggests that you do, and that there are many people who are not getting access to higher education who have a very, very different view of the world. And that is perhaps one that we're not so familiar with, and we do need to think about that. I also think it's interesting. I was looking to see what's been published since the referendum. A lot of political scientists have published things. Not very many higher education people, not that many other social scientists have published anything. But there's a lot of people in other countries writing about advice. And that advice is, you know, Hunter and DeWitt is one example. Oh, put internationalisation at the heart of UK universities. Did they not think we already had that? And, and there's, these, there's whole journals now about kind of university admissions. Oh, you must rethink, says, you know, Margaret Dennis, who to recruit and from where. Yeah, okay, but maybe that isn't good advice because maybe we already have some idea of what we're engaging with and perhaps we just need to keep going. And then finally, what can individuals do? Because that's problematic as well. There are some obvious things, many of you probably already done it. Join the 48% Facebook page, that's the people who, who voted to remain. Read Scientists for EU posts on Twitter and Facebook. I think they're very informative. 
And all right, they may be dismissed by the government, but I think they're very helpful. And if you feel really depressed, just occasionally they have an inspiring story, so that will cheer you up. Connect with those outside higher education who support you. That's really important, because I think that what is happening is higher education is just ploughing its own furrow. It isn't looking at all the other groups who also want to stay within the EU, or if not, want a very positive relationship with the rest of Europe. So unless, and universities do tend to think that they're on their own. I think they need to look outside. And I think we can help them do that by us also looking outside. I think that as academics, we have a duty to be public intellectuals. I know that's a long debate. I know that the Gramscian tradition is long gone. Even the Workers' Education Association tradition is, is kind of rapidly disappearing. But we have, I think, a responsibility. And I was interested in something Jonathan Grant said yesterday about, you know, academics often see themselves as outside politics. But we aren't outside politics. We are right in the middle of it. It doesn't mean that you go and make a political speech to your 9 o'clock Monday lecture, because I'm sure the Competition and Markets Authority would be round your house immediately telling you that you need to make, get the consent of the students first. But it is saying, go out and explain why European collaboration is so important to us, because many people don't know. I think also, research Brexit. Much of what already exists is, as I say, from political scientists and lawyers or it's by outsiders. So there's a lot of stuff we could do in the short term. So get out there and look at it and actually treat it as an object of research. Try to look at non-UK perspectives too, I think. And remember, of course, the UK is four different countries. They didn't all vote to leave the EU. And I think the view that as Remainers lost the referendum, we should shut up is nonsense. Because keep debating and lobbying. Don't take any notice of that. And finally, that's my message. Don't give up on Europe. We still need them and they still need us. Thank you.